Let's pray. Jesus, tonight we want to talk about the third leg of the stool. We want to talk about sharing you with others and what that's all about. And I ask you to come and open our minds and our hearts to hear and receive everything you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at the three legs of the relationship stool. What's the first leg? Reading the Bible for what purpose? To get to know Jesus more deeply. Not for doctrinal or prophetic or technical study, but relational. Second leg, prayer for the purpose of? Two-way communion with God was our focus last night. Not monologue, but dialogue. And not just emergency prayers and God help me with this prayers, but prayer for the purpose of sitting down and having a conversation. You know, guys, if our wives say we need to talk, what do we say? About what? Right? The wife says we need to talk. We say about what? And she says that's not the point. Right? They just want to talk. We don't know how to do that. We need to learn how to do that with the Lord. Tonight, the third leg of the stool, sharing. Not buttonholing people to try to convince them they're in the wrong church. But bubbling over with relational joy. A, I believe the only real witness is a natural witness. Because the only tasty fruit is natural fruit, right? We liken these to eating, breathing, and exercising spiritually. Let's begin tonight with a story. The story is told of a couple of men walking a trail over a high pass in the mountains of Tibet. And they got caught in a snowstorm. The first one, as he's walking along, hears a cry for help over the side of the trail. And he looks and down a steep precipice is someone who's fallen. And he looks down there. How is he going to get the man back up to the trail? The storm is getting worse and he figures... It's karma. No way he can help this guy. So he just heads on up the trail towards the monastery. Another man shortly thereafter comes by and he hears the cry for help. Figures it'll probably cost him his life. He'll never make it, but he's got to help the guy. So he goes down and, you know, laboriously drags him up to the trail, gets him on his back. And, you know, every step now is a quarter as long and twice as hard. And, and, and it's, you know, the muscles are burning and they make their way up through the storm. And as they finally, after extra hours out there, get near the monastery, they suddenly trip over something in the path and they fall in the snow and they discover it's the body of the first man who was frozen to death. So he gets the man on his back and they make it through to the monastery. Now, the principle here is very simple. By trying to save someone else, he saved himself. The two bodies are with warmth, the extra exertion. The one who tried to save himself didn't make it. The one who saved another saved himself. Jesus tells a story. The kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. Immediately he went on a journey and when he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made five talents more, likewise he who had received the two talents went and gained two more. He who had received the one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. 
After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. The Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He who had the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered two to me. I've gained two more. The Lord said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I want you to notice the reward for doing a good job was not a fat bonus or an all-expenses-paid trip to Phoenix in July or Tahiti. Rather, it was more work and more responsibility, and that's called the joy of the Lord. What is joy? This joy is the privilege of doing the Lord's work. Albert Schweitzer said this one thing I know. The only ones who will be truly happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. Ann Landers and Dear Abby, remember that? You old timers, a long time ago in the newspaper, advice columns. And many times someone would write in and say, my life is so pathetic, it's going down the drain, and tell of their woes of sad tales. And what kind of advice did they give? Ann Landers would write back, go find someone who's worse off than you are and help lift their burdens, and you will lose track of your own sorrows. And I have a lady, a Mormon lady, who's a friend of mine, who just recently told me a story. She said one of her Mormon sisters was depressed. And the Mormon sister went to her elder for help. And the elder said, well, while I'm trying to figure out what to do for you, Sister Jane over here has two kids and a new baby. She could use some help. A little while later, the lady came back. He said, I don't have it figured out yet, but Sister Sue over here has two new babies and a three-year-old. She could use some help. And after three or four rounds of that, she said the lady came to the elder and said, I don't need any help anymore. My depression has lifted. <laughs> That's a principle true around the world. Those who live for themselves are the most miserable. Look at the tabloids. The rich and famous who seek the next thrill, the jet set who spend their time trying to find some new way to entertain themselves are always breaking up with a spouse, going into rehab, getting caught in a scandal or an addiction. One in six U.S. adults is on some kind of psychiatric drug or antidepressant. It's interesting. Over 20% of white adults are on antidepressants. Only 10% or so of blacks, Hispanics, and Asians. Seems to be a white problem. It's worse than any other. People who serve others find the greatest joy in life. They may not have the most fun, but they'll have the most joy. What is fun? A momentary thrill that gives you an endorphin rush. In order to have the fun again, what do you have to have? A little bigger thrill. And eventually it becomes an addiction. But joy is an abiding inner reality that is deep and lasting. You can have joy when you're in pain. You can have joy when you're under stress. You can have joy when you're in difficult circumstances. It's an inner buoyancy that transcends circumstances. And Jesus doesn't say enter into fun. Here's a bonus, some more, some fun, because you did a good job. 
He says, here's the way to find joy. People who serve find joy. People who save themselves may find moments of fun, but they'll end up drowning in a sea of meaninglessness and addiction. My cousin Lee, when he was pastoring in Kansas City, had the opportunity to meet a man who had just become the world heavyweight kickboxing champion. This was, uh, I think, around 1986. I guess that's the most dangerous form of organized refereed sport. And this man had just become the world champion. And Lee had a chance to introduce this man to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. And the man became a committed Christian and a Seventh-day Adventist. Lee moved to another assignment, Western Washington Auburn Adventist Academy. And while he was there, Steve Mackey, this gentleman who was the kickboxing champion, he had an appointment up in Bellingham, which is two and a half hours north of where Lee was, to give a lecture at a high school. And so Lee decided to drive the two hours up there to see Steve and bring him home where he could spend the night and then take him to the airport so they could talk a little bit after these years they'd been apart. So Lee arrived at the high school there and found Steve standing backstage by a pillar. And as he approached, he realized that Steve was praying and weeping. And Lee said, are you okay? And he said, yeah. He said, I'm just praying that tonight these people, when they leave this place, they won't remember Steve Mackey, the kickboxer. They'll remember Jesus, who's the best friend anyone can ever have. And he went out and he spoke to the group, and Jesus was the theme, not the kickboxer. And afterwards, people crowded around for autographs, and one nine-year-old came up and said, Mr. Mackey, can I have your autograph? And he says, of course, but first, if there's one thing I wanted you to remember tonight, what was it? And the little boy said, that I can be friends with Jesus, and Jesus is the best friend I can ever have. Steve said, right on, gave him the autograph. They got in the car about 11 o'clock at night for a two and a half hour drive home and it's already 1 a.m. Steve Mackey's body time. And Lee said, just put the seat back, kick back, get some sleep. We're going to be on the road two and a half hours. And Mackey said, sleep? I couldn't sleep now. He said, the greatest adrenaline rush I ever get is telling people about Jesus. And watching them get it. Did you see that little boy? He got it. Steve said, this is so cool, and I can't believe you get paid to do it. This could be addicting, he said. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Somehow we need to get it through our heads that joy does not come from playing golf in Sun City. You know, we live just right near Sun City, Arizona, which was the original Del Webb retirement community. All the other Sun Cities around the country came after we're the original going back to the 60s you realize that in sun city of all the phoenix valley four million people i believe sun city has the worst problem with alcohol and sexually transmitted diseases that's the old people who don't have anything to do but enjoy life Joy doesn't come from retirement. Joy comes from dying with your boots on serving Jesus. I believe that. I remember HMS Richard Senior used to say, the Bible doesn't say anything about retirement. <laughs> People ask me if I'm going to retire at 67. I don't know what I'd do. Plus, I love what I do. Why would I quit? I'm just not that big of a golfer, I guess. 
Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, what happened to the third servant? He who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here you have what is yours. He said, I didn't lose anything. I brought back the original. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The servant comes and says, I didn't lose anything, didn't lose anything. He's the triple loser. He lost the joy of the Lord. He lost what he'd been given. And he lost his job. Maybe even his life. Sobering words. Use it or lose it. I broke this arm twice, age 7 and age 15. And so I know what it was like to have your arm in a cast for four weeks. When the cast is taken off, the elbow is stiff and the muscle is puny, right? Use it or lose it. You have to rehabilitate. It's interesting that every single gospel ends with a commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 19. By the way, the verb there isn't go. The verb in that sentence is disciple. It doesn't say make disciples. That's a verb and a noun. It says while going, a participle, disciple all nations while baptizing, while teaching. The only finite verb is disciple. That's the commission, is to disciple everyone, everywhere. Call them to be disciples of Jesus. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke is a little more wordy. Thus it was necessary that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You have a job to do. John twenty twenty one. as the Father has sent me, so send I you. We are called to be witnesses for Jesus. That's the commission. Now, what do you think of when you think of witnessing? I'll tell you a funny story. In 1990, July... After working, Marilyn and I had been uh, living in an RV, doing evangelism on the road for nine years, and we felt a call of God to pastor a little church just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And it just so happened there were about eight people still going to that church. It had kind of fought itself down to nothing. And uh, about that time, this, this man showed up. His name was Ralph. Ralph was an ex-FBI man who'd specialized in going after bank robbers. Ralph said he'd married the same woman three times and it didn't work any of the three. And Ralph had bought a front row bayfront house in Tiburon before the prices went through the roof. He'd bought a house for 100000 that was worth well over a million. But he didn't have any money. You know, luckily Prop 13 back then 
stopped the property taxes from going with the valuation and only allowed them to go up slowly for people on fixed incomes. Ralph was a unique guy. He had spent several years hanging out with the Jehovah's Witnesses. He never became an Adventist. But he would say to me, Pastor, let's go witnessing. Now, what did that mean to Ralph? Let's go knock on doors. Now, I'm the pastor. I'd rather scratch my eyes out than go knock on doors. But when somebody in your congregation says, Pastor, let's go witnessing, the pastor does not have the option to say, no, thank you. Okay, Ralph, what time? Okay, we'll go witnessing. And I said, you take the lead. I'll, I'll back you up with prayer. And we'd start down some street, knock on the door. It would open. Hi, I'm Ralph. This is Gary. We're from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Wham. Next door, same thing. Introduce us, door slam. You know, about five or six houses down the street, I just wanted to crawl in a culvert. You know? And what I realized is we were not out witnessing. We were out annoying people. They were trying to have dinner with their families, and we were out interrupting things. And they had absolutely no interest in what we were there to share. And all the times Ralph and I went witnessing, I don't think we ever talked to one person. And when I talk about witnessing, I don't want you to feel like we just want you to go out and annoy people. Let me ask you a question. Does God need us to finish the work? I saw some head shaking no on that one. Well, then how come the slogan in our church time and time again has been to finish the work? Camp meeting slogan, ministers meeting slogan. It's all about let's finish the work. As one conference president I had for a number of years, he's now working at the GC level. We need to finish the work and get off of this ball of mud and go home. Could the angels finish the work? Uh-huh. Have we heard of the angels doing the work? We've all heard of the stories of the missionaries who finally get deep in the Amazon jungle and they find a tribe and they're already cleaned up and, and living like Christians and they say, how did this happen to you? And they talk about a dream that the headman had or a man in white showed up or something, right? Angels. And of course, the Adventists especially love the story of the Eskimo village where they were already keeping the Sabbath. Oh yeah, right on. Could the angels do the job? Could inanimate objects do the job? Jesus told the Pharisees, if you make the people be quiet, the stones will cry out. So then, why does every gospel end with a commission? Matthew 24, 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. And we interpret that, that our job is to make sure the gospel gets preached to every nation so that Jesus can come. This verse doesn't say that. This verse simply says the gospel will go to everyone. Jesus won't leave anyone out. None will be forgotten. And of course, then we go over to Revelation and we have the three angels flying in the midst of heaven. This one has the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And we see ourselves as being the movement of the three angels, right? Every Adventist church has three angels somewhere. We've got it in a big window coming down like your window there, but a big window up front. When we first moved to Phoenix, it wasn't done by an Adventist artist. 
And it's, it's very um, symbolic or avant-garde or something. Marilyn saw it and she said, what are those? Are those three scorpions? <laughs> Needless to say, that was not the right way to introduce the subject to our new church. No, those are the angels. We all have the three angels. I was at a church in uh, Spartanburg. Is it North or South Carolina? We just worked in the Carolina Conference, so I don't remember. We were in Spartanburg. And there, up the center of their church in the front, was just a piece of carpet, like on the floor. But some of the people in the church had gone up there with toothbrushes, and they had moved the nap of the carpet in such a way that they got the three angels coming down. It was actually pretty cool. We're into the three angels. We have a job to do, to warn the world and get them ready for Jesus to come. And I believe that. I believe that. But I want you to picture something. I believe that where humans fail, angels will kick in. Because God is not going to let anybody be lost because we didn't tell them. I want you to think about it. We all get to heaven. And there's the saved inside. We're all going to be inside, right? Amen. All right. But there are some lost people outside. So I'm standing there near one of the pearly gates. And there's a knock. And God decides to open it a crack and see who's there. And it happens to be my neighbor that I've lived beside for 22 years. And that neighbor says to God... Here I am stuck outside the city, and Gary, who is my neighbor for 22 years, never told me about you. And God says, you know, I'm really sorry that Gary failed you. I intended for him to tell you. I convicted him. I impressed him. I told him, and he didn't do it. I can't force him. I did the best I could. I'm really sorry that you're lost because Gary didn't tell you. Does that make any sense? The God who would step down from heaven, become a human being, live a life on this miserable earth and go to an even more miserable death for the purpose of making it possible for every human being to be saved if they'll just accept it, then goes off and lets somebody miss out because one of us didn't tell them? I don't believe that. I believe the ultimate witness to the glory and love of God is that in the end, when we're inside, those that are outside will all recognize and acknowledge that the only reason they're on the outside is because they rebuffed the repeated, repeated, repeated intense efforts of God to bring them in. God's not going to cop out on the excuse that some of us failed him. His children are too precious for that. The Bible says he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. It doesn't say we will finish the work. The Lord will make a short work on the earth. The Lord will execute His Word on the earth thoroughly and quickly, the New American Standard Version. The Lord will work in this last work in a way that will be contrary to any human planning. God will use ways and means by which it will be seen that He is taking the reins in His own hands. The workers will be surprised by the simple means that He will use to bring about and perfect His work of righteousness. God will employ agencies whose origin man will be unable to discern. It won't be our plans. Angels will do a work which men might have had the blessing of accomplishing had they not neglected to answer the claims of God. Please notice, if we 
don't do the work, we'll miss the blessing, but he'll send angels in to do the work. Now, I don't have any clue how this is going to happen, but I firmly believe that in the end, no one is going to miss heaven because you and I didn't tell them. We'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. What is the purpose then of God in giving us a part to play in the plan of salvation? Who is the primary beneficiary of sharing? Give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It's more blessed, the word there is fortunate, to give than to receive. We're the ones who get the greatest blessing when we give. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We get the joy of it. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Have you thought about that verse? The joy of the Lord is our strength. How does that work? Here's what I believe. Satan is able to so easily tempt us because we have vacancies, empty spots, desires that aren't fulfilled. And so he says, well, try this, try that, try something else. And he gets us addicted and he gets us into all kinds of trouble. But if we are full of the joy of the Lord, think about it. We're just bubbling over with the joy of the Lord. How's Satan going to tempt us? If we're bubbling over with the joy, Satan can't find a place to get a temptation in. If we're already bubbling over with joy, how can he tempt us to do something stupid to try to fill a need when we don't have a need because we're overflowing with joy? I believe the joy of the Lord is probably the greatest inoculation against temptation. It just shuts Satan out. He can't get a foot in the door. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The effort to bless others will react in blessings upon ourselves. This was the purpose of God. This was the purpose of God in giving us a part to play, a part to act in the plan of redemption. Notice. The blessing reacting upon ourselves is the purpose of God in giving us a part to play. Not so others can get to heaven. He can take care of that probably more efficiently without us. This is the highest honor, the greatest joy that it's possible for God to bestow upon men. If you will go to work as Christ designs that his disciples shall and win souls for him, You will feel a need of deeper experience and a greater knowledge in divine things. You will hunger and thirst after righteousness. You will plead with God and your faith will be strengthened and your soul will drink deeper drafts at the well of salvation. Encountering opposition and trials will drive you to the Bible and prayer. You will grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ and will develop a rich experience. It sounds to me like the reason we're supposed to go out and witness is all for our good. The only way to grow in grace. Now that's an opening sentence, isn't it? Opening phrase. You know, they tell you in in marriage, never use the word only or always. Or never. (laughs) You never do that or you always do that or you only. This is very clear. The only way to grow in grace. Well, now what is the only way? To engage to the extent of our ability in helping and blessing those who need the help we can give them. 
Strength comes by exercise. Activity is the very condition of life. Those who endeavor to maintain Christian life by passively accepting the blessings that come through the means of grace and doing nothing for Christ are simply trying to live by eating without working. And in the spirituals and the natural world, this always results in degeneration and decay. A man who would refuse to exercise his limbs would soon lose all power to use them. Use it or lose it. Thus the Christian who will not exercise his God-given powers not only fails to grow up into Christ, but he loses the strength that he already had. Use it or lose it. The third leg of the stool is not optional. If all you do is read and pray but never share, you're just going to get spiritually fat and lazy. You know, in the Middle East, there are two seas. The Sea of Galilee, which has water coming in and out, and the Dead Sea, which has water coming in and nothing going out, and there's nothing living in it. But in the Sea of Galilee, they still earn a living by catching the fish. Down in Phoenix, just to the west of us, about 15 miles, is a little range of mountains. It's about 20 miles from north to south, and it's a couple thousand feet high. It's just boom, there's this little range of mountains out in the middle of the desert. And they're called the White Tanks. When I moved to town, it was like, White Tanks? What's... Why would they be called the white tanks? And then one day I did something I discovered later I wasn't supposed to do. A whole section of it is a county park. The problem is, by making it a county park, they'll fine you if you step off the trail. So it's like, now wait a minute. I get to see about 1% of the park by walking on these trails. What about that canyon over there? And, you know, one day I didn't realize I went up and over the top and down into one of these places and we saw wonderful things and I discovered the white tanks. There are places, kind of whitish rock, where the water has carved a nice smooth bowl and once the rushing waters have subsided after a flash flood, they held water and cattle would drink from those throughout much of the summer. But I was up there late enough in the, in the year that the water in those white tanks was gross. It was green and smelly, but I discovered what the white tanks were, pools of water. But if nothing's flowing out, you soon have a swamp. And the water is unusable, at least for humans. God could have reached his object in saving sinners without our aid, but in order for us to develop a character like Christ, we must share in his work. So what's the purpose that we share in the work? To help others get to heaven? No, so we can develop a character like Christ. In order to enter into his joy, the joy of seeing souls redeemed by his sacrifice, we must participate in his labors for their redemption. God is capable of getting the work done without us and a lot quicker without us, but in order for us to develop Christ-like characters, we must share in his work. In order to enter into his joy, the joy of seeing others redeemed, we must enter into his work. In order to taste that joy, we must participate. So if we're the winner... When we witness, who's the loser when we don't? Ah, you got it. Will anybody be lost if I fail to witness? Who might be lost if I fail to witness? Me. Take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The third servant 
lost the talent, lost his joy, and got thrown into outer darkness. Now there's a motivation to witness. If you don't witness, you're going to hell. So, have we just returned to a fear motivation? And if I stop here, we have, so I'm not going to stop here. I'm going to say no because of this verse. I am the true vine, Jesus says in John 15, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So what does that say? You don't bear fruit, you're toast. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear, bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear, cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Please notice, if you don't bear fruit, you're going into the fire. But then he says, if you abide, you will bear fruit, and if you don't abide, you'll go into the fire. So what does that tell us? The only command in this entire passage is abide. We're not told to bear fruit. We're not told to get pruned. We're not told to work on bearing fruit and getting rid of sin. We're told to work on what? Abiding. And abiders bear fruit, and fruit bearers get pruned. You got that? So this verse doesn't say bear fruit or burn. It does say abide or burn. Right? And of course, what's the whole point? If we're not abiding in Jesus, we're not abiding in life. And if we're not abiding in life, we're not going to live. Okay? So it's not the threat of burning, but death will come. Unless we reconnect with the one who is life, we will not live. But if we truly reconnect with the one who is life, we'll bear fruit. Fruit bearing is his job. We abide. He promises fruit, and he promises pruning. He says, if you'll abide... We'll have good fruit, and we'll get off with the sins. We'll, we'll cut off all the dead stuff. So, I can say confidently, who will be lost if I fail to share? Me. But, if I abide, I will bear fruit. I don't have to be afraid. Oh, am I bearing enough fruit so I won't burn? I need to abide. And he says, you will bear fruit, and you will get pruned. Don't miss that. Abide in me. And if you abide, you'll bear much fruit. This is not fear motivation. Fear not. Abide. And God will take care of the rest. If I'm seeking Jesus daily in an ongoing intimate relationship through Bible and prayer, I will bubble over naturally. Fruit will naturally grow on a fruit tree. A fruit tree does not bear fruit in order to be a fruit tree. A fruit tree bears fruit because it is a fruit tree. And if that tree puts its roots down by the rivers of water, funny thing, fruit will happen. Isn't that right? And that fruit will taste good. When you try to force fruit, I was in Cheyenne, Wyoming, November of 2017, the very first all about Jesus series that I went to give. And there was a, uh, 
a restaurant there that had a really nice salad bar. And I'm into salad bars. I kind of need to watch my salt intake, so that's one place I can go to, to. I can have a good meal and know what kind of salt I'm getting. So, And I love salad. So I went to the salad bar, and they had a section of fruit. And they had cut up fruit, and then they had some whole fruit sitting there. And I thought, well, I just, I just like an orange. So I picked up the orange. Well, they had such good-looking fake fruit. <laughs> and I was glad nobody was looking. I picked it up and set it down quick like, oh. I was embarrassed. But you know good and well, it would have tasted awful, right? If you could bite off a piece, it would taste terrible. The only good fruit is natural fruit. And Jesus says, if you'll abide, the fruit will come naturally. And if you're bearing fruit, you won't be cut off and thrown into the fire. So this is not fear motivation. No sooner does one come to Christ than there is born in his heart a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. Now please notice what that says. It doesn't say that as soon as one comes to Christ, there is born a desire to tell people they're going to church on the wrong day. My grandpa, Oscar Vinden, in his late 80s, we took him up to the Trout Lake Valley right above White Salmon, Washington, just below Mount Adams. Literally, that valley goes right into 12,000-foot Mount Adams. Gorgeous place. Where great-grandpa Nels built a barn. It's still standing. Um, built that barn about 1904 or so. And we took my grandpa back up there. He'd been raised in that valley. He moved there when he was about four years old, I think, and he'd been raised in that valley. And we arrived in that valley, and somehow we ran into a lady named Elva Pearson that was about the same age. And these people knew each other. Grandpa knew Elva Pearson. So we got them together. And I don't think they'd talked for three minutes, and Grandpa brought up the Sabbath. And she said, now, Oscar... We haven't agreed on that, and we'll just have to keep not agreeing on that. She just put a stop to that. He was a good Adventist. Get a chance, you got a witness. Now, I believe in the Sabbath, and I believe in our doctrines. But notice there's born in the heart a desire to make known to others what a precious friend we've found in Jesus. That's a whole different world, isn't it? The saving and sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his heart. You know, sometimes I think we fail to share what a precious friend we have in Jesus because we've been so programmed to share doctrine. And because we found that so uncomfortable, we just don't share anything. If we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ and are filled with the joy of his indwelling spirit, we shall not be able to hold our peace. doesn't say if we're filled with doctrine and proof texts. It says if we're filled with Christ and the Holy Spirit, if we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we shall have something to tell. Please, I believe the witness God calls us to is a bubbling over of the joy and the goodness of a relationship with Jesus. And that'll open up all kinds of opportunities later to share doctrine that will never open up otherwise. If I don't share, I'll be the loser. Winners overflow. Joy bubbles over. Natural fruit is tasty. And 
God will see that everyone has an opportunity for salvation. And if I'm willing to talk about the joy of the Lord to others, he'll give me lots of opportunity to be part of that. Who's the primary beneficiary when we share Jesus? We are. Who's the primary loser when we fail? We are. It's a privilege and an opportunity, not a duty or an obligation. Think about it this way. Up in heaven, God calls a council and he calls all the angels in and he says, you know, we've been talking together about what's going on down there on planet earth and those people are very special to our hearts and we want to shower as many blessings on them as we can. And so God asked the angels, what do you do that brings you the greatest joy, the greatest blessing? And you know, the angels are all flapping their wings saying, pick me, ask me. And finally God asks one angel and the angel says, I can't get enough out of helping people connect with you, Jesus. That's as good as it gets. And so God says, well, then it's not fair for us to hoard all the joy. We need to give them a chance to be part of that. There's a celebration in heaven when one sinner repents. Think of what happens when a dozen or a hundred. What does God do more than anything else on this earth? What is God's primary task on this earth? What does he do he's seeking to save lost people so if you want to hang out with jesus where are you going to hang out with lost people you know good and well we pastors know that new converts in terms of evangelism are only any value for about three years because by the end of three years all your friends are inside the church You've isolated yourself and just about everybody else and you really don't have anybody left to witness to. But if we want to hang with Jesus, I think we're going to be hanging with lost people because he is out there seeking lost people. Henry Blackaby in Experiencing God said, don't try to figure out what you can do for God. Figure out what God's doing and go join him. And he's out to seek and save the lost. Those three parables, the lost son, he got himself lost, he knew he was lost, he knew the way home, but he wondered if the father would be waiting. And the father was waiting with binoculars, saw him a long way off, and they had a grand celebration. The lost sheep knew it was lost, but had no idea how to get home. And the shepherd went and found that sheep and brought it back, and they had a great celebration. The lost coin didn't even know it was lost. Certainly didn't know the way home, and it was lost inside the house. Is it possible to be inside the church and be lost and not even know you're lost? You can if you haven't stumbled upon the wonderful news that God is looking for friends. God's great goal is not for you to be good, but for you to be friends. We're all invited into a special friendship, which is the heart and core of the Christian life. And good news, even lost coins are found and God throws a party. If you want to hang out with Jesus, you better go find lost people and hang out with them because that's where he is. He's not just hanging out down here at the church. You know, we pastors have been guilty of the Greyhound bus approach. This goes way back. Remember the slogan? Sit back and leave the driving to us. And we pastors sometimes sound like, you know, we're the professionals. We have the training and the Bible studies. We've got the books, the workshops. We've been through the seminars. We have the degree. You just give a good offering and we will shine. 
Shame on us. God didn't give us the job of finishing the work. He gave us the job of coaching in the process of all of us getting involved in entering into the joy of the Lord. And by the way, the fear motivation to witness, you know, if you don't get out there, people going to Christless graves. We've all heard that. Maury Vendon was preaching on this subject one time at a camp meeting, and he's making this point. Who's going to be lost? Who's going to be the loser? Who's the winner when we, when we uh, witness? And he made the point that he didn't believe anybody was going to be lost because anybody out there would be lost anyway because we didn't tell. And the conference president behind him audibly muttered, you just destroyed all of our motivation to get people to go to work. And how much has our church depended on fear motivation? I'm sorry, I don't believe God ever uses fear motivation because he knows it's short-lived and doesn't really work. And especially in witnessing the fear motivation backfires because you think about it just for a minute. If you don't witness, people are going to be lost. Then if you do try to witness and you mess up and you don't do it quite right, then you're going to be responsible for people being lost. So if the motivation is primarily fear, you just need to dig deep and give those offerings to the professionals so they can go do it right. Fear motivation just doesn't work. It may work for a little spurt, but there's no fruit. So, let's talk about witnessing 101. Mark chapter 5. Remember Jesus crossed the lake in the boat, and when he got out of the boat, there was a demoniac in one gospel, and in another gospel there were two demoniacs. Someone suggested that whoever wrote the gospel with only one demoniac was a disciple that was already running for the boat before he saw the second one. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't run. He speaks. And the next thing you know, the demoniacs are sitting there clothed in their right mind. 2,000 pigs have gotten infected with the devil and run into the sea and drowned themselves. And the people come out and ask Jesus to leave because he's hard on the economy. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed, Mark's writing from the... You know, we think Peter was probably the one behind Mark's gospel. Peter must have been the one running to the boat first. Because he only has one demoniac. He who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Now, I will tell you, when I was a little kid and I first heard this story, my brain already jumped ahead and said, of course he invited him into the boat. And then the preacher kept on reading... And Jesus did not permit him, and I was going, what? But said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis, the ten cities, all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. I want you to notice, Jesus says, go to your friends and tell them what the Lord has done for you. Go. To whom? Family, friends, neighbors. Literally go off unto your house and to the yours. Doesn't tell them to go to strangers. Tells them to go to friends and family. You shall be witness to me starting where? Right at home, Jerusalem. Then go to the strangers around the world, right? 
The first works of the church were seen when the believers sought out friends, relatives, and acquaintances, and with hearts overflowing with love, told the story of what Jesus was to them and what they were to Jesus. I like that quote. Wow. They were just bubbling over to their family, to their friends. I like that. What Jesus was to them and what they were to Jesus. You know what people are missing? They don't believe they're valuable to somebody else. It's important that we recognize how valuable we are to Jesus. That is good news. So the first place we're supposed to go witnessing is to those we already know and just bubble over about what Jesus has done. The second thing Jesus says now is tell. Tell what? What great things the Lord has done for you and how literally he mercied you. Mercy is a verb. How he mercied you. He who is mighty has done great things for me. That's the message. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, if Jesus is lifted up, people will be drawn. He doesn't say if doctrine is lifted up. He says if he is lifted up. The two restored demoniacs were the first missionaries whom Christ sent to preach the gospel in the region of Decapolis. For a few moments only, these men had been privileged to hear the teachings of Christ. Not one sermon from his lips had ever fallen on their ears. They could not instruct the people as the disciples who had been daily with Jesus were able to do, but they bore in their own persons the evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. They could tell what they knew, what they themselves had seen and heard and felt of the power of Christ. This is what everyone can do whose heart has been touched by the grace of God. As witnesses for Christ, we are to tell what we know, what we ourselves have seen and heard and felt. If we have been following Jesus step by step, we shall have something right to the point to tell concerning the way in which he has led us. It's got to be personal, people. We can bear witness to what we have known of the grace of Christ. This is the witness for which our Lord calls and for want of which the world is perishing. The world doesn't need you to be able to give them Bible studies. The world needs for us to tell them about Jesus and what he means to us and our lives need to show it. The fruit of the Spirit needs to be there. Love, joy, peace. Some of your Bibles say patience. It's literally macrothemia. Long-suffering is the correct translation. You know, not many of us have a very long fuse, right? We don't suffer long and we start lashing out. Our annoyance level is pretty quickly tripped. Graciousness, I think, is the best translation of the fifth of the fruits. Goodness, trust, or trustworthiness. It could be either one. Meekness or humility. And then the last one is what? What's the last of the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. Oh, there you go. You better get yourself under control. Do you know what that word is literally in the Greek? Inner strength. It's not outer self-control. It's inner strength. That's a fruit of the Spirit. The strength comes from the inside out. We're new people. And when people actually see that, like I said 
when my mom, I saw her life actually change by spending time at the feet of Jesus, and I saw it change in exactly the place where she was struggling, and that was in her relationship with my father. And that was real and unmistakable. Has your spouse seen heart-level change in you because of Jesus? Or are you just as hard to live with as you ever were? You know what I'm talking about? If our neighbors see real change, they see a real difference, they'll be open to hearing what we have to say. The fruit has to be real. And the only way to get real fruit, it's got to be natural fruit. Because you're putting your roots down by the rivers of water and the fruit simply grows. Abiders bear fruit. Jesus told us to talk to our family and to simply tell them what Jesus has done for us. Now, we can't tell them what Jesus has done for us if by looking at us, they're certain Jesus hasn't done a thing. I'm a new person in Jesus, you know, and they look at you and say, well, don't look any different to me. Still the same whatever. You know this quotation, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. We often bid people to follow Jesus before we sympathize or minister to needs or win confidence. I've memorized this, and I like to use it in prayer every morning. And I like to ask God for three things. Number one, I need your heart. I realize I don't really care about people. I care more about getting my tasks done, getting all the stuff off of my list, you know, getting where I need to go. I can get on an airplane and ride for six hours and not say a single word to the person beside me. I am perfectly happy. But I don't think God is. So I need his heart, and I pray morning by morning, God, today, give me your heart. Secondly, give me discernment of what people's needs actually are. Because what they ask for may not be what they really need. You know, at my church in Phoenix, every day people are knocking at the door asking for stuff. Let me tell you, if you start giving it, they line up. Because the word gets out on the street. I don't know if you guys have many homeless hanging around Midland, but we've got them all over the place. Sleeping in our parking lot on our doorstep. We have a school, so we have to call the police and have them removed before the children show up. We haven't figured out a better way to do that. But I, have to, I, I want God to not only give me a heart for people, but help me know what the real need is. It may not be the food they're asking for. It may be something else. Sometimes Jesus fed. Sometimes Jesus healed. Sometimes Jesus said, follow me. What's the real need? And then notice he ministered to their needs. What resources did Jesus have? He didn't have any money. He didn't have a food bank. He didn't have any shelters to refer them to. He just trusted if the need was there and God told him to fulfill it, God would bring the fulfillment. So I pray for those three things. Lord, I need the heart. That's first. If I don't have that, I'm worthless. I need the discernment and I need the substance, the assets to do the job, whatever it is. 
Jesus blessed without condition, no hook. He showed his sympathy. He ministered to needs. But he did ultimately bid people to follow the Lord. There's a need of coming close to the people by personal effort. If less time were given to sermonizing and more time spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. I need that phrase, that sentence. Because I'd much rather sermonize. Accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, the power of the love of God, this work will not and cannot be without fruit. If I go up to a stranger, what should be my objective? Make friends. Not tell them about my church, not tell them about my doctrine. Make friends. Not tell them what sinners they are. I'm convinced God did not call us to throw tomatoes at sinners. The first psalm says, blessed is he who doesn't walk in the ways of the ungodly. Yeah, right, not going the wrong way. Doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Oh. You know, we love to watch sinners, don't we? That's what watching television is. Is watching other people sin. Right? That's what the news is. That's what entertainment is all about. Somebody sinned and somebody tries to figure out who the sinner was. Blessed is he who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, just get our entertainment from it, or sit in the seat of the scornful. God did not call us to sit and yell at sinners. Now, I don't think we should be saying sin is okay. But we should be out making friends with sinners so we have a chance to show them enough love so that when God is ready, we can point them to a Savior. Our job isn't to throw tomatoes at sinners. When you meet up with lost people, become friends. I have a retired conference president who's come to help me at my church. His name is Mike Ortel. I don't know if any of you have met Mike Ortel. He's spent most of his ministerial and administrative career in New England area. New York and on up into the New England states. I'll take my staff out to lunch most every Wednesday. And we take Mike along. And I tell you, we'll be sitting in a restaurant. And all of a sudden, Mike pops up out of his chair. And I'll watch him. He's walking around. We usually go to a big salad bar restaurant. So there are a lot of people. And it's not like intimate. So you can kind of strike up conversations. And... Uh, he pops out of his seat, and he's walking around. He's got to connect with somebody. It's just flowing through his veins. And it's the funniest thing to watch him. And he strikes up conversations and has a great time. You give him an hour in a restaurant, he knows everybody there. And quite often, he climbs a mountain. We call it Camelback Mountain. And it's, you know, in the middle of Phoenix, thousands of people go to one place to go up and down this mountain to exercise every day. Twice a week, he goes up and down that mountain. Every time he ends up praying with somebody, he ends up sharing with somebody. He has such a good time. But he starts by just getting a conversation going and he discovers that so many people just haven't had anybody listen to him. And he gets to talking and the next thing you know, he ends up sharing something about Jesus. He ends up praying with him. And I've realized by watching Mike Ortel, and he says he wasn't born that way. That's something God put into him. He was born introverted. And I look at Mike and I say, boy, i got a long ways to go. I need to be out there trying to make friends. Every chance I get, God, show me how to connect with people. 
I mean, what do you do when strangers come to your door to tell you about the Bible? You may be one of those Adventists that loves to argue, so you open the door and let them have it. I'm just not home. I don't answer the door. I do not want to engage. But if a friend comes up and says, man, I've got to tell you what God showed me this morning, I'm all ears, right? So the cool thing about Witnessing 101 is no training is necessary. Just spend time daily getting better acquainted with Jesus and then talk to people about what Jesus is doing in your life. I didn't say if you can get training, you shouldn't. If you can get some training, go right ahead. But please, did those demoniacs need any training? No. And when Jesus came back the next time, the people were ready for him. And they hadn't heard a single sermon. They hadn't been through any training. But Jesus said, go tell them what Jesus has done for you. No training necessary. If we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we will have something to tell. Our personal testimony is what people need to hear. That will attract people like nothing else. That was the drawing power of the early church, telling people what Jesus meant to them and what they meant to Jesus. A man named Larry Claridge was in his mid-80s. He was a quiet man, little to say, but did a lot. He was a champion for Jesus. He was going to die in the saddle with his boots on. And one day he was driving through the small town where he lived, a town of similar size, I think, to Midland. And he saw a man literally lying in the gutter. And he stopped his car and he went over to the man, afraid he'd been hurt or maybe hit by a car, and discovered the man was just dead drunk. But he got the man in his car and finally got out of him where he actually lived. And it turned out the man lived in a cab-over camper. No pickup, just the cab-over camper in the middle of the field. And he helped the man into his camper and helped him get into some clean clothes into bed. And then he left a note in a paper on the table with his name and phone number and said, anytime you need help, give me a call. That's a dumb thing to do, right? And he started getting calls late at night usually from a bartender, 2 o'clock in the morning, who would say, there's a guy out here too drunk to even walk, and he said, if I'd call this number, you'd come down and get him. So Larry would go down, take the man home, and some nights he sat there all night with the man, afraid that he would vomit and, and uh, suffocate on his own vomit, so he wouldn't even go home. He'd spend the night. This went on for weeks. This went on for months. One morning, the guy woke up and Larry was sitting there and he said, why do you keep coming to my rescue? And Larry said, because someone keeps coming to my rescue. I'm just passing it forward. The man said, who rescues you? Does he live around here? And Larry said, yeah. What's his name? Jesus. Never heard of him. Could you introduce me? I'd like to meet him. I could, but we have to do it through the Bible because that's where I meet with him every day, Larry said. I never had a Bible, the drunk said. Uh, don't even know what's inside. Larry said, I'll get you a Bible. And he began going to that camper, and they simply started reading through the Gospel of John. Simply hanging out with Jesus. Introducing this drunk to a friendship with Jesus. That went on for months. Finally, one day the man said, do you go to church somewhere? Larry said, yeah. Mentioned which church and where. Can I go? 
Of course, I'd be honored to take you, Larry said. What do I wear? Larry said, what do you have to wear? The man said, I got jeans, a flannel shirt, a baseball cap, and tennis shoes. Larry said, perfect, I'll pick you up Saturday morning. Saturday morning. Now, Larry's church, he was an elder in his church, by the way, and his church is broadcast live on TV. So the people dress up and act churchly. And that Sabbath morning, Larry picked up this man, and Larry was wearing jeans, a flannel shirt, a baseball cap, and tennis shoes. He got the man in his car, took him to his local Adventist church, and two walked down the aisle all the way to the front and sat down. The man didn't take his cap off. Larry didn't take his cap off. Larry said a few months later he got to witness that man being baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And he said it doesn't get any better than that. Enter into the joy. It's the highest honor, greatest privilege to tell someone else about Jesus. But it may be a lot of work getting close enough to them that you finally get a chance to tell them. Do we care enough about people to go to that kind of work to become close so we can win their confidence? That doesn't take training. That takes love for people that you'll only get from the great lover. If you have been to the table, you will have something to share. You will tell what Jesus has done for you. So I want to challenge you to an experiment. And I put this on your notes, by the way, so you don't have to frantically write it down. Every morning, at the close of your time alone with Jesus, now what does that suppose? You have to spend time alone with Jesus first, okay? So every morning, at the close of your time alone with Jesus. Don't do this if you don't have time to spend with Jesus. Ask him, Lord, please open my eyes today to specific opportunities you arrange where I can make a difference in people's lives for you, Jesus, and for your kingdom. And give me a nudge when it happens so I don't miss it. Does that make sense? Don't go out there and try to find somebody to witness to, but ask God if he if he will arrange some mingling. What did that statement say? Our Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. So I've started to pray, God, would you set up a mingle today? Set up a mingle. Give me the heart. Give me the discernment. Give me the assets to meet their needs. But set up a mingle today. I encourage you to uh, put that on a post-it note and put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it right on your rearview mirror, just hanging from the corner there, on your car. Pray that prayer daily and watch what God does. A pastor preached on this subject with this conclusion to ask God to set up a mingle. And a lady named Karen was part of his church and she was shy and quiet and a behind-the-scenes helper but the pastor challenged her on Sabbath. And she called the next Thursday, and the pastor said he had to hold the phone out here. She was so excited, so enthusiastic. Let me tell you what happened this week, she said. I prayed that prayer on Monday morning before I went to work. She said, I'm in a government job, I'm in human resources, and I'm responsible over several hundred people. That day, that Monday morning, a lady came to my office and said, can I speak to you? 
The lady came in, they closed the door, and the lady told her personal story, and it was so tragic and devastating and sad with sorrow that the lady said, my heart just ached for this woman. I don't know how she even got out of bed in the morning, much less did a job. And Karen heard herself saying, may I pray for you? And then all of a sudden she got this panic. I've never prayed for anybody out loud before. I wouldn't know what to say. And so she said, I'll pray for you every morning when I get up. And the lady said, now? Karen said, okay. And she told her pastor, she said, I sent up a silent prayer. Lord, give me prayer for this woman. And she said, then I prayed a prayer that I didn't know where those words came from. But I prayed for her, and when I was done, she was weeping. The next day, another lady came. Said, I heard you prayed for Sally yesterday. Would you pray for me? <laughs> Lord, give me prayer for this woman. And she prayed. Tuesday afternoon, two more of them came in and said, we heard you prayed for Sally and Jane. Would you pray for us? Lord, give me prayer. Wednesday, all four of them came to the office. Said, we've been comparing notes. You talk to God like you're talking to a friend. How does that happen? She said, Jesus is my best friend. Oh, come on. God can't be friends with you. He's too busy running the universe. She said, yes, he is. I meet with him every morning in his word. Would you like to meet him too? And she said, Pastor, today, Thursday, we started spending our lunchtime reading the Gospels together. And she said, I've never had anything that brought me more happiness. Will anybody be lost if I don't witness? No, I don't believe God is going to let anybody be lost, except possibly me. But if I abide, the witness will be natural. And the only real fruit is natural fruit. You can't threaten the tree to get more fruit. All you can do is fertilize and water, and that's what the gardener does. And that's what we participate in when we sit daily at the feet of Jesus. The only real fruit is natural fruit. The only true witness is a natural witness. The bubbling over from my relationship with Jesus that's actually made a change in my life that they can see. Speaking of bubbling over, when I was about four or five years old, my grandma, Vanden, came to live with us for several years. And I remember one day my dad bought her a whistling teapot. Now, as a four or five-year-old, I'd never heard of such a thing, right? Yeah, they said when you put water in, when it starts to boil, it whistles. So, let's do it, right? That's what a five-year-old would say. We put water in it, we turn on the stove. It took forever, right? Never boils when you're watching it. But all of a sudden, that thing started to sing. And you know what they promptly did? Turned off the heat and took it off. And as a five-year-old, I'm going, it's supposed to sing. Why'd you stop it? I wanted to hear it sing. That's what it's made to do is sing. Didn't dawn on me that was just the warning that the water was boiling. May I suggest if we drink from the water of life and ask the Holy Spirit to come in and get it simmering, we'll bubble over and we'll whistle. And somebody will hear and somebody will see. The only real fruit is natural fruit. The only true witness is natural witness. And we will be part of experiencing the joy of the Lord as the Lord uses us to experience helping other people find their way to Him.
Amen? Jesus, thank you that we're the winners when we share. Thank you that we get to experience the joy of the Lord. Thank you that you don't threaten us that we must share or we'll be lost. Thank you that you've promised that if we will simply abide in you day by day, the fruit will come, the fruit will taste good, and people will taste and see. I thank you, Jesus, that you do not use fear motivation. You use love. And may we fall so in love with you that we can't help but bubble over. May you get our teapots to whistling. And may others hear and receive and follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.